0: .NET Rocks episode 710 with guests Stephen Forte, Tim Huckabee, and Lino Tadros. Recorded live Tuesday, October 18th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard.
1: ACI.
2: There's 5,000 people in this room. It's
0: amazing. <laughs> that was a big sound. I think it's a fire hazard, Carl. <laughs> they have fire marshals in Bulgaria? I don't think so. No? They, they put fires out with Rakia. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that actually, I think, makes the fire worse. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, it's .NET Rocks Live in DevReach. Here we are. This is, our, what, our fifth year here? Something like that. Fifth or Something sixth. Something like that. And uh, we
2: have an esteemed panel of .NET Rocks regulars. Mr. Forte. Mr.
1: Franklin. How are you? I am doing very well. Having a good show here? I am having a good show. I got to introduce Scott Hansman on the keynote. Yeah, it's been great. It has been really great. Uh, Scott was great. Tim was great this morning. Jesse was great. We had a great show so
0: far. You didn't introduce Tim this morning.
1: I did not introduce Tim this morning. I was sleeping.
0: Nice.
3: <laughs> that was a good party last night. <laughs> there was a lot of rakia, the local drink, last night. And Tim,
1: night.
0: you
2: just did a killer keynote. Tim Huckabee.
3: Yes, thank you. It was fun. And Richard introduced me, which uh, I genuinely enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Richard does a better
4: job than I do. Yeah, he's a pro.
2: And Lino Tadros, how are you, sir?
4: I'm doing great. Thank you.
2: And I really enjoyed your keynote yesterday. It was great. And I learned a lot of things, and I thought I had known a few things about WinRT, but it just goes to show you, man, unless you're in the trenches and doing it, you're not coming across these problems. Well, we've got uh, got all this talent here, and we're going to talk about...
0: Building a software business. Starting your own company. Well, and, and it just, I thought we got a really interesting array of folks that run their own companies, but lots of different approaches. So maybe we should start at Lino's end and tell us a little bit about Falafel Software.
4: Sure. Falafel Software, this is uh, the 10th year for the company in the United States.
0: Congratulations.
4: Well, thank you. We have been doing consulting and training mainly on .net for the whole time. Mm-hmm. Only uh, the last 18 months, we also got into iOS and Android for mobile development, but mainly we are a .NET company uh, from the get-go, before the alpha.
0: And, I mean, true consultancy, so companies come to you to get software built?
4: Yes, actually, a lot of companies in the United States, in Europe, and in Australia come to us, whether to help them out finishing up something that they're hitting the wall with, or to build the entire application from the start uh, till the finish. So it could be a two-week job or a two-year job.
2: And would you say that your, your clientele built mostly by word of mouth or did you have to do any actual advertising or was it always just, uh, referential?
4: Usually for .NET, uh, we didn't really have to do much, but for mobile, we feel like we have to do a lot of advertising because we are not known in that world. Yeah. But for, uh, for consulting, for .NET, C Sharp, Silverlight, WPF, usually people see us in conferences all around the world and say, ah, let's call these guys and see if they can help us out, and the rest is history. But uh,
2: And you get a lot of referrals, too. I mean, I that's how consulting yeah. works. A lot of
4: the companies that we have been working for have been uh, customers for the last 10 years. Yeah. Happy
2: customers begets happy customers nice. yeah, like in Delirik, this
4: business. says, um, uh, deliver more than expected. And for Falafel, we always say invoice more than expected. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, Tim, we heard part of your story at the keynote this morning, uh, just a, the whole creation of InterNology and so forth. And you actually worked for Microsoft at one point in your life.
3: Yeah, yeah that's where I learned how... Microsoft Build Software certainly was the genesis for founding Internology. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely.
0: So was it was an example of what not to follow?
3: Or? <laughs> you know, I have to be careful here. I just realized because most of my engineers listen to this show. Sure. So Hi, I, guys. I've, 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 <laughs> got, I've got to be a little bit positive <laughs> about starting uh, Internology and then, uh, and then Actis. Uh, I, I guess my story is, you know, I, I was young and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I, I wanted to do it better and with more integrity. The company I was working for did not have the integrity that, uh, well, they're just awful people to tell you the truth. Nice. Wow. That was Microsoft? You're talking no, no no no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just to ask him. No, 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 no. There's plenty of awful people there, by the way. <laughs> so, um, you're yeah, I did, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of money to start a service business. Uh, that's what internology is mm-hmm. service business. Uh, it takes customers, right, Lino? And it takes some employees. So founding the company was easy. That Keeping it running, f- running for a decade. Not so easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So th- which gets, internology gets hammered in downtimes. Now it just so happened for the last few years, we've been doing pretty well financially, but historically those economic downturns have been painful. Mm. Now I also founded a product company recently. Um, totally Cause, different, because you didn't have enough pain in your life. You'd yeah, another one. <laughs> so the product company thing, as Steve well knows, takes a ton of money, and it's yeah. it's not about the technology in a product company. It's about marketing and sales yeah. and all that type of stuff. So those those are my two worlds, and they're equally painful, and I have professional jealousy on both sides right? It, it, it's kind of awkward at times. I'm always surprised. Uh, any, anybody I work with who's in the consultancy side
0: always wants to make a product. And the product people always talk about how wonderful it'd be to be a consultant. Absolutely.
1: The grass is always greener.
2: You always Absolutely. What you don't have, right? And uh, Steve, let's talk about your uh, experiences with uh, starting your own businesses. You've been sort of doing your own thing ever since... Uh, Childhood. DOS 1.0. You know, <laughs> Tell, tell us your story.
1: Well, I started uh, when I graduated university, which um, was probably more older before a lot of the people in this room were born. Um, I worked on Wall Street for a year. So don't blame me for the financial crisis. This was in the 90s. And um, I couldn't install stuff on my computer. So I started my own business. That was kind of my excuse. <laughs> I, I, I would get in trouble. That software sucks. I got to build it myself. Well, no, the IT guys would I'd get in trouble for installing AOL on like, my work computer. It was like 1993 or 1994. And so I said, if I start my own business, I'll have complete control over all the technology. So I started a consulting company, just like Lino and just like Internology. I did that for five or six years and I realized it sucked. Um, And I said, I want to build products. So the grass was greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. Took a slight detour during the dot-com era, but I I started two product-based companies. And the first built a product that was not for software developers. What it did is it, um, it was more of a product for marketing people. We calculated how much companies spend on the Internet in certain verticals, in four mm-hmm. or five different verticals. And from start to finish, it was about five, six years. We started it with our own money, a business partner and I and then about 5 years later we sold it to a publicly traded company. So I actually got to watch the you know the beginnings to the actual end of a company, you know, mm-hmm. from from literally we used to joke that the first version of the company, the first office was my apartment when you used to come over, the second office was the Starbucks, and then the third office was where we actually, you know, paid people rent and actually had an office with servers and stuff.
2: Now one of the things that is interesting about you three guys is that you've always been very well connected. Tim, you've been well connected at Microsoft, Lino, you worked at Borland with Anders Halsberg. Uh, you, Steve, you've been in New York City where marketing is like having lunch with some really powerful person. If you're uh, in Bulgaria or if you're in uh, some more remote place where you're isolated from people and all you have is that website and that internet connection, is that, that's a different story, is it? Or is it not? I mean, do you find customers and people out there on the web that are just in the middle of nowhere that... Uh, that uh, that you work with
1: well I mean here 's a great example is you know Teleic, I did not found Teleic. I started Telericic. There was probably about you know fifty sixty people at the company at the time we're five hundred now, so i 've been there from the early days, but you know when I started there, we had one office right here in Sofia, and you if you know look to Teleic as as an example of an entrepreneurial success in a remote location if you think mm. you know Teleic is successful, I think they 're successful. Um, you know, look, look no further than that. Yeah. You know, using effective marketing, effective internet. Eventually when the company grew big, they opened up a small office in the United States. When I started the, the Telerik office in the United States was in the basement of a Bulgarian who moved to the United States. Hmm. Right. And now we have an office in the United States with like a hundred people in it. Right. But yeah. that's a different story. This is many years later. So yeah. uh, you definitely can do it from a remote location. It's, it's a bigger challenge. but You right. definitely can do it.
2: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, JustDecompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the JustDecompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile, or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks.
0: Guys, uh, I think most folks who are considering starting their own software business, haven't done it before, are, are trying to figure out the leap. I have a job. Maybe I'm doing development, and I am trying to. I, I want to be out on my own. And I, I think that's the question I get the most off, is how do you make that first step?
4: Well, have a seat. <laughs> well, in my, my case, have a
1: couple
2: of seats. Couple. <laughs> I got the
4: left sheet going. But okay. um, I yeah.
1: had to sit next to him on the airplane ride yeah. here. So. Yeah, uh, he did not have fun sitting underneath I'm me Just saying. <laughs>
4: anyway, um, it's really, it takes a lot of work. And your state of mind, um, I think, probably I'll speak on all of us. You have to understand that you have to give Saturday to get Sunday back when you're starting. You're, you're not going to get hired for a lot of money from the first job if you're not known and all that stuff. So a lot of us had to go speak in different countries, and we love what we do for free. Mm-hmm. People pay maybe our hotel and our, uh, our flight, but when we started 20, 25 years ago, uh, we loved doing it, and we do speak in code camps and users' groups and all that stuff. And the first job, uh, people say, like, ah, I can't afford, you know what, I'll do the first one for free, just let you see what kind of work I can do. And then they get very uh, excited. I remember my first gig was I was in Delphi world was Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard had a major uh, Delphi server, and they had a major uh, comm problem. And they wanted somebody to come in for four hours to take a look at it, and the big companies would not go for four hours. It's not worth their time. I accepted, and I went in on my own and fixed the problem in one hour. I didn't milk it. I didn't actually uh, do a four-hour worth of billing. I just one hour, and I fixed the comm problems, and all the servers were back up again. And uh, when they saw that, never, now every time they have a problem, they used to call Lino by like, This guy fixes it really fast and he doesn't charge right. days and days. So I started going. And when I started my company and so on, I had three people working uh, 40 hours a week for two and a half years at Tulip Packard because of that. Yeah. So you have to remember um, the ethics, like Tim said, you have to show the, the, uh, the integrity that you actually have to. Uh, to to prove yourself in the beginning. After that, this guy tells the other guy, this guy was good, and then the next guy. Mm -hmm. So you have to be patient. You're not going to make a million dollars on the first deal you're going to ever make. So you have to be patient, love what you do, and the money comes later.
2: Is this business a true meritocracy?
4: I would love to tell you if I know what that means,
3: I would
2: (laughs) 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 Can you you make it just on being awesome?
3: No. Absolutely no. I I don't think so. And and let me me, uh, paraphrase what Lino just said. To answer your question, sacrifice. Yeah. If if you really want to jump in either on the consulting service or product side, and be an entrepreneur, it's a huge sacrifices. You, you know, I, I tell my my engineers all the time that uh, you know the typical internology engineer, or in this case business owner, um, doesn't watch TV. You know, I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. Mm. You build Apparently we, we're it. not allowed to. but yeah. yeah, and it's it's like Lino said, it's a seven day a week job. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard to go dark. Absolutely difficult to go dark. Although I totally believe that everybody should have one dark vacation, meaning
0: no off the grid. Yeah, off, it, You can't call no me. Cell phone. You can't email me. I'm, I I'm, I've always been a big believer in letting your customer miss you once in a while, just to you know remind them that. You actually like it when I'm around. I'm a good thing, you know. Alino, I feel like you jumped over a a really interesting thing, especially starting out, which is going from one to more than one. I mean, when you start out and you are the product as well as the manager before you hire your first guy on. I mean, how long did you stay just you?
4: A long time, almost like uh, seventy-two hours. Nice. (laughs) I uh, I actually got my first job working from my garage in in the Bay Area, and. uh, Within 72 hours, HP says, like, oh, uh, is there more Linos out there <laughs> that we can actually move things along? And I called my uh, friends that used to work for me at Borland at the time. like, hey, you want to do this full time? Like, sure, how much does it pay? And I told them, like, oh, yeah, we quit right now. <laughs> so uh, we started two three uh, people. Within one month, actually, we had three people. And wow. then within another three months, we were 10 people. And uh, yeah. after that, we, we had a lot of people love to come to work for the company because the company was almost... Going 500 percent increase in revenue in size almost every year. Wow. So we had people like Steve Teixeira. We used, uh, I hired him as the CTO of the company at mm-hmm. the time. He's now the head of the parallel programming and C++ at Microsoft. We have Charlie Calvert worked for the uh, C# team, and uh, we had a lot of great people coming through for Apple Software for the last ten years.
0: I just it's a, I find a lot of folks challenged by this whole. Why would that guy work for me? Why wouldn't he just go out on his own company as well?
4: This is an awesome question, I'm sure I'd love to hear from them as well. Being an awesome developer doesn't mean that you can run a company, they are completely different things. I know people that are way, way more intelligent than I'll ever be in software engineering, but it doesn't mean that you can actually sit down with a CTO or a CIO or a CEO and make a deal to understand or make them understand how we can build great things for you, and you can actually put your trust in a very small company of 35 people. We're not IBM with 4,000 people. It takes a lot to be able to sit down on that in that restaurant or in the boardroom and make that deal. And I yeah. know a lot of people that are geniuses don't have it to be able to convince somebody that I am the person that you should go with. And when you're a consulting company, usually whether you call it falafel software, you call it whatever you want, it's really based on a personal relationship. If they believe in you, they're going to give you the project. It's not about the company. It's not, you don't carry IBM behind you or Microsoft or anything like that. So I have a
1: couple of things to add to that, even circling back to starting that business, making the leap. And everyone I talk to that comes up to me for advice on starting a business always says, Steve, you know, how'd you make the leap? And I said, well, I just did it. I just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to do it. And I made the decision and I stuck to it. Most people always have an excuse. And, right. you know, and they're good excuses. I have kids. I have kids that are going to university or I have, you know, a family to support or I'm, my job. is you know, So you have to determine if it's right for you and don't wait. All right. Don't sit around and say, well, first, well, I'll wait six months. We'll write a business plan and we'll look around. No, if you, if you have an idea of what you want to do, you think you can do it. You can afford to have some time without an income to get started, jump in and get it done. Second thing I wanted to comment on is What Lena was saying about, you know, 72 hours before you had, you know, your first kind of employees and things like that. I've always started the businesses with a partner from the beginning. It is, because Tim was talking about sacrifice. It is impossible to start a business on your own. Bill Gates did not start Microsoft on his own. Steve Jobs did not start Apple on his own. Telerik didn't get started by one person. There were four founders all the businesses I've started had multiple founders. You need the people. One is the, is the shared sacrifice, meaning is, you know, when you want that dark vacation, you need someone else tending the shop. And the other is, as Lino said, is you need some differenti- differentiators, right? You, you know, one guy will be the tech guy, one guy will be the marketing guy, one guy will be the business guy in that respect.
4: I agree 100%. Um, although I did it in the beginning on my own, but I'm, I'm a the kind of guy who say, I'm a sensitive guy. So you don't want a, a guy like me running a company because everything is emotional. It's like, oh man, this, you want somebody very stable being the CEO, <laughs> not like me, you know. Saying, but, but you learn, you learn on the fly and he's starting to actually not um, go hyper on everything. Oh my gosh, they're doing this. You have to have somebody running the company that a little bit more common during the good times. And the not just time. the
1: emotion. You, you, you mentioned that a developer doesn't necessarily know how to run a business. Yeah. I, I can't agree more. And what I found interesting is a company or or in a nascent state, in a very early state, uh, contacted me a few weeks ago, and they said, hey, can you maybe be on our advisory board and give us some advice? And it was three developers building a great tool. And they said, where should we go next? We're thinking of going down this road. And I said, have you considered the other side? And they said, no, oh my goodness, that, that opens up so many more doors, that's great. And, I, and they said, oh, wow, you know, how did you come up with that? I said, well, I'm just looking at it from you know a marketing and sales perspective. And I said to them right away, I said, you can't call me every single day, right if I'm on your advisory board, of course you could call me a lot, but I go, you need someone to make these day-to-day, hour-to-hour decisions. You need someone to augment your technical skill with business skill.
2: The one thing that I can see as a common theme between all you guys, and probably between all of us up here, is we have technical know-how, but we also have that personality that that it takes to talk to business people. And uh, it, it's very contrary to your average developer's personality, which I think is a little bit more internal, uh, a little bit more... Uh, so. Is that the advice that we're really giving people? Is, you know, learn stand up comedy? Uh, learn how to talk, take a public speaking class? Um, it helps, <laughs> you
0: know? Well, and it, yeah, I'm going to paraphrase from you then. It's just, you guys are all business leaders, but you all started out as tech people.
3: Like, what happened to you? Where did, where did you go wrong? I yeah, know. <laughs> that's called crossing the dark side. Yeah. We crossed to the dark side. I, I think to support these guys' points, especially in Lino's case, I, I lived the same thing. If you're billing, like the way we started, I was, you know, 150% billable, right? right. 60, 70-hour billable weeks for months. But then you've got to an invoice, and then you've got to collect. Right. Follow up on the invoice. And there's just not enough time in the day to you do have that. You payroll for the old employees and, yeah. and the medical. Someone's and got to read the balance sheet and do the income statements. and it, It's just too much. That's why business people, that that's the tough leap. Yeah. You know, it's... It, Techno, I, I, my engineers hate when I say this, but really good engineers are a dime a dozen. Ooh, Ooh. they really are. the The complexity of running a business is not engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys will agree, I hope. No. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in front of 500 Bulgarian
1: engineers. You
3: know, I actually, and they were pissed. I,
4: this is the first one I disagree with them about. Uh, there is a lot of good engineers, but I think if you have a great engineer, it's not even worse like 10 good engineers. It's in the hundreds of times better. Really? Of what, oh, yeah. Especially when you have a small consulting company, you're looking for a senior architect level. Knowing how to code does not mean that you're an architect level.
1: That, that wasn't Tim's point. Tim's yeah, point was yeah. that engineers, there's a lot in this room, we have 500 engineers, right? But entrepreneurs, people who can run a business, oh. understand the business side of running a technology company are hard to find. Yeah. That, that was
0: Tim's point.
4: I'll let you go this time.
3: You let me go.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, you said, I didn't want to let this go, Lino. You're not the CEO of Falafel?
4: I am. Okay. I am so, a CEO of Alpha, but I write more code and do more training than anybody else in the company. So <laughs> who's the grown-up in your company? Yeah, yeah who's, who's the adult who runs the company? Who
2: keeps you out of jail? John
4: Waters. John Waters is the president. Yeah, I bet John, he is a grown-up. Uh, he, yeah, he is an amazing guy. I mean, he's a find. Uh, yeah, don't, don't, this hopefully will not air in America. No, 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 at all. no, no, no yeah. uh, John is just an amazing guy. I mean, a couple of years ago, I just promoted him to be the president and CTO of the company. And uh, he is definitely the right person to have to do the day-to-day operation thing. And he comes to me every time there is a major decision that will impact the company for the next six months to a year, and I'll be more than happy to jump in, but the day-to-day operation of the company is definitely, uh, he does an awesome job, he definitely uh, does a great job with, with the company. All the engineers in the company in six states Love the fact that they can come to me. They can come to John to ask technical questions. And that's the thing about software consulting and software in general is that you really cannot get a business guy that doesn't understand technicality or source code to be able to run a consulting company. first right. of all, you don't get the respect of your people. Even if you are the CEO of GE or Pepsi Cola running the company will not impress coders. They want to be able to say like, Mr. CEO. I have a bug in my XAML that I'd like you to take a look at, and if you can get in and fix it for them, it's like man, I'm happy to work for a CEO that actually can fix my my bugs. Right, you know. Other than that, it would be very difficult, even if you're the best technical um, CEO guy in the world. The, something about our industry, which is not in any other industry, we have to be technical to understand what's going on. But is it, you said,
2: and this is to Tim's point, where you said that there's less technical business people. Do you think that we should have more technical business people? Like, do you I, I have to that have has, that technical like background? Steve, that's,
3: to... a that's a talent. That's a real rare talent.
2: So if you're technical and then you start getting into the, the business side of things, you have a bigger leg up than your uh, business cohorts who may not be so technical is maybe what I'm paraphrasing. Yes,
3: you paraphrased correctly. Mm. Can I tell you a little story about that that reminded me, the respect thing? The, the CEO job is a lonely one. It is a very lonely job. If you're a good CEO... Um, I did a keynote for Steve Ballmer once, and uh, he's the CEO of Microsoft. I'll make a really long story short. He, the the PR people said, "You're not even going to talk to Steve. You're just going to run up on stage, do his demo, and whatever he says, go uh huh uh huh uh huh." Right. Well, it just so happened we got to talk to Steve, and he runs up. He says, "Tim," and it was the the cancer thing, right? Right. Yeah. Um, 3D WPF and in says, New York. You're right. At the, uh, at NASDAQ. He runs up and he says, uh, Tim, I just don't want to appear stupid on stage. It just, just tell me what this is built in and, 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 you know, how'd you build it and all that? I'm like, well, Steve, it's, it's dot net. And he says, really? Primitives? And I said, I was like, you know what a primitive is? Huh. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> the CEO of Microsoft knows what C primitives are. Right. And immediately, you know, I, I went from from, oh, he's a big CEO guy to, man, I respect him because hmm. he understands the technology. Yeah, very important. And I think in, in this is the only industry I think you, you guys may disagree where the CEO really needs to understand a little bit about the technology. Which has been difficult for my CEO, right? Mm-hmm. She, she comes up from the business side. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been a, a learning curve for her on it's the a, internology side. It's a challenging
0: dynamic to deal with that. And I wonder, you know, if you're, when you're trying to lead a company like that, how you can actually maintain your chops. Like, how, I mean, how many hours in a given month, week are you
4: doing the coding side, Lena? Mm-hmm. Well, during the day, it's all business, and during the night is all the coding, yeah. because you cannot write code during the day, because every five minutes, there is somebody coming to your office, yeah. there is a phone with a customer, so there is no way. You put the kids to sleep, and your day starts around 10.30 at night.
3: That's Writing when you get code. it done. Sacrifice.
4: Yeah. yeah. Ten years in. Ten years in, but now I only work half days, only 12 hours a day, that's it. Only. <laughs> <five
3: days. laughs>
4: Spectacular. Uh, Steve, I've...
0: I've Thought of you as a startup guy. Can you talk about the differences in creating a startup versus creating a consulting company and sort of the bootstrapping of that? So,
1: you know, my experiences are actually different than Tim and Lino, is that I've built products that are not wrapped around consulting, right? So, the, you know, Internology was a consulting company and, you know, Falafel is a consulting company. So, bootstrapping a startup is a lot different because you're building something. So you need to spend time where you're not going to get a paycheck. And so you're going to build a product. So you have a great idea. So your idea is, I'm going to build the next XYZ product. And you're going to write this software and you say, I think it's going to take six months. Well, guess what? It's going to take probably more like eight or nine months. But we all know that. We're all developers in the room.
0: Yeah, the difference now is instead of lying to your boss, you're lying to yourself.
1: (laughs) And you're also lying to the people who either gave you some money to get started or your bank account, right? If you're living off your savings, right? Mm -hmm. So those lies become quicker and, you know, those lies become more and more acute. So what's interesting is when you start, when you start in this environment, there's pressure to release. And what's great about it is the industry is built, the startup industry is built around releasing early and releasing often. A lot different than the way we build enterprise software, for example, where we just say, you know, let's give a beta in eight months or, you know, our first beta will be two years from now. So Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, has a quote that I live and die by. He said, if you are not embarrassed by your first release, you waited too long to release. Hmm. And the reason behind that is more than building software as a consultant for a customer, because let's face it, customers don't know what the heck they want, right? Whether you're, whether you're an internal IT department, whether you're like Lino and Tim building for external customers, they don't know what the heck they want. But when you're building a startup, if you build the wrong thing, you're out of business, right? You just wasted six months or a year of your life with no paycheck, and then you got to go get a job. Right? So what you do is you release early and you release often and you put it in front of the customers and then you don't necessarily build what they ask you for. You find out what their problem, so a customer, Henry Ford has the famous quote. Everyone know who Henry Ford is, right? Mm -hmm. He invented, you know, mass production of the automobile. He didn't invent the car. Some people think he invented the car. He invented the mass production of the automobile. And he said, if I listened to my customers, I would give them faster horses. Yeah. Right? So in essence, you can't build faster horses. You need to be innovative. So what you do is you build your, your V1 prototype, you bring it to the market, and you put it in front of the customers. And you write down very politely all the things that they tell you you need to put in your product that they will give you money for it. Then you go back and argue with your business partner because one of the two of you is going to be like, no, no, no. We have to build exactly what the customer wants. Customer number one. Customers always correct. What you really do is you analyze the problem. Translate and it. You translate it. Exactly. And you come up and you solve the problem, and a lot of the things they bulleted will be part of that solution, but not all of them.
0: Now it seems like there's a very small line between the consultancy that was building software for a customer and the startup that was building a product that they ultimately sell to a customer. And you know, like, where's the distinction there?
1: I mean, we're doing the same thing; we're just selling a different product, mm-hmm. right? So, Lino selling hours, a finite commodity. And they say, you know, we need we need this software built, and Lino says that's going to cost, you know, I think your rates are about one thousand euro an hour, or is it two thousand euros an hour? (laughs) I forget. It's cheap. It's very cheap. Lino's
3: very, very cheap.
1: Thank you. And um, you know, you're know you building something for them. They usually give you some kind of design specifications. At the same time, you're doing the exact same thing in a startup, except you have no specification and you have no hourly rate. You're just building something for a future customer to go buy. So you're doing roughly the same thing. You have to figure out what they want. You're just not invoicing, and you're selling more of those units at the end of the day. Well,
2: isn't the, the consultancy software is usually very tailored, very specific software, whereas the stuff that you're selling to many customers... Has to be a bit more general. Is that a rule or a myth?
1: That is a rule. However, is a lot of startups fall into the trap of building something tailored to their first early adopters, yes. right. which then they usually never grow bigger than a niche player to those first early adopter customers.
2: So the, the kinds of technologies we should be looking at are the plug-in technologies, the adapter kind of configurable things that uh, don't lock the customer into specific features.
1: Well, we like to lock them in to keep buying the product. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but you're absolutely correct, right? We want to make sure that you know they're always going to be extensible and build it and build something. So one of the companies I built. That I was describing when we logged in. I mean, when we first logged in, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> when we first logged into .net Rocks an hour yeah, yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, um, as I said, we provided uh, analytics to, to businesses, and it turned out some of our customers just wanted the data feed and do it themselves. And then, you know, that was just a great example of trying to adapt to their needs, but it yeah. was a fit within the mission.
0: Essentially, sold a different product at that point.
1: Right, we sold data feeds. Nice. Had to price it different, you know. So it gets
0: confusing. Let me spin this another way. Have you ever had a customer on the consulting side come to you and? say, Say, hey, we think this would be a great product.
3: Constantly. Let's partner. Yeah. Every oh. freaking project. Oh. Almost. Yeah? Oh. Yeah. 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 And, and let us let me be clear. Internology doesn't do consulting, nor does it do training. Right. You know, it's it's a project company. Mm-hmm. So we, we build products for product companies. A lot of our customers are software companies. Right. Mm. But, um, yeah, every customer is, this should be a product. You guys should take it to market yeah. on the internology side, we don't know how to do that. I think focus and ambient ignorance is, in, is extremely important. So ambient, I'm aware, ignorant of what I don't know. Mm. Right, Taking something to market is very expensive and difficult. You said, so when, you said the word focus,
2: which is don't try to do everything.
3: Right. Try, yeah, and I think internology's success is because they're laser-focused on the XAML stack, Yeah. Right. Which which now has to change a bit. Because of WinRT, but, but, um, um
1: we're well, also focused on building a type of thing. You just said it. We build projects and you build products mostly for software companies. You're not, you're not changing your business model around and saying, oh, we're also going to do this. We're also going to do that. You're very focused on what you do and you're very
3: successful at it. Same with you, Lino, right? You, and, but, but let me be honest, we didn't always have focus. Yeah. And a lot of our problems were because we didn't focus. If someone would beg us to do training and we'd do it. And, we lose focus on our core business, and all hell breaks, breaks loose at that point. I, I don't know if that's yeah. the case for you guys.
4: One of the best things that I'll tell you for the last 10 years with Falafel is that six projects that we worked on for customers ended up being a product that they went um, and sold the company based on that product. So mm-hmm. we built the product for them. Mm-hmm. They knew how to take that product. and. Uh, They brought us in as pseudo-CTO to be able to answer the questions, but they went public with that product, or they got bought by a bigger company because of that product. Mm. And the way it starts, usually somebody wants to create a a new ERP system. There's so many ERP systems out of the box, right? right? Right. But they are maybe working in the food industry for perishable goods. Well, Oracle and SAP and all these don't have specific ERP systems for perishable goods for food. So if they go to Oracle... $2.5 $2.5 million just to get the box, and then you have to spend another $2 million just to customize it to work with that. Yeah. And so if we're going to spend that kind of money anyway, let's get somebody that will actually write it specifically for us and will have the product. So we work on the product, it took about two and a half years to build a full-blown ERP system in ASP.NET wow. Wow.
0: that
4: will work extremely fast. And after that, once they went to market, other perishable goods all over the United States saw the product from them and said, we would like to license that from you. So they started licensing. I was like, "Hey, let's start another company yeah. just for that product." And now the product is haywired. Wow,
0: now, did you great. stay involved with that? Is the, do you have an interest in that new business? Yeah,
4: it's been seven years now. So since that shipped, every now they want to spend more money to actually more features and so on. So, so the question you ask yourself: What would have happened if we have actually created a product for Falafel Software? Right. But we would have never been successful because we don't have any in on the perishable goods. But systems. you could
2: have gone the other way. You could have said, "Oh, I'm just a per, uh, for
4: hire contract," and not gone into those licensing agreements, right? We, we, no, they did. We didn't. We just wrote it for that one company, and then they took our work and they started licensing from them for that company.
2: Oh, so you didn't? You weren't involved in that deal no, at all? No, because
4: we wouldn't have been able to penetrate into. The, the community of perishable goods ERP right. system. We are a consulting company for.NET. What do I know about vegetables? Right. <laughs> uh, but they were able to be very successful. They sold it for over $100 million. Nice. Wow. So it was, it was really incredible. Uh, and that happened over and over again. Wow. We wrote application, for instance, for the Pentagon. Uh, and then the Pentagon uh, shows this to the U.S. Army, to the Air Force, and whatever. And then we get called by all of them to motor- customize it, make things here and there. So same thing for medical companies, hospital. You get into one hospital and everybody's like, oh, I want that WPF application. Now our code is running in 132 hospitals on the East Coast. Wow. So this is how it starts. Would we have been able to take that product and sell it? We haven't. We right. no doctors. Well, maybe 10 And months. you're
2: still benefiting from it because every
4: customer is a potential customer of yours. Yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. they want to customize something. that will take like one XAML file yeah. to change. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's going to take six months. <laughs> <laughs> But interesting, different kind of
0: partnership model here. I mean, there's the partners you have within your own business that obviously offset the different skills. And then there's the partnership with other businesses that have a different set of skills as well. They, You know, they're Absolutely. experts in medical or they're experts in perishable foods. And you're the expert in software. So there is a partnership.
4: There it is a partnership. They bring in the, the knowledge about the... Uh the, the the business itself, whether it's medical or military or whatever, which we have no idea about. We know about the software, so there is time we have to spend to understand their business as well, whether it's accounting, ERP systems, or whatever. So we have to really understand what's going on. So there's a be- time has to spend beginning to understand what's going on. After that, we can bring the technical expertise. But as far as the knowledge about the uh, the industry itself, that comes from them. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: there's something we haven't touched on yet, which I'd like to, because a lot of .NET developers don't even think about this, and that's liability insurance. Yeah. If you're in a consulting company, um, how important is that? Isn't that absolutely necessary in, in this business? Because absolutely. it's a Sue happy business.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. We used to start, uh, we started the company uh, in 2003 with a uh, million dollar liability insurance. Very quickly, I found out that that doesn't mean much. So it went to two million, then it went to five million, and now we are at $50 million per incident for liability insurance. That means if somebody writes code to bring the Wall Street down, I cannot get sued for it. Or if I get sued, my insurance I actually can get something to be done about that. But our contracts for the company are 10 pages, and some of it was like, um, you know what, some code in application might
3: be written by Tim, so we're not liable for that stuff. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, learnt, you certainly learned to appreciate lawyers. Oh, yeah. no, yeah. I never did. <laughs> uh, and, and, I mean, my God, for the last Three, four years, it's all lawyers with me. Yeah. Um, Setting up Actus.
2: Because, I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical, but companies see your success. They see you making money. You're a target yeah. for, for a lawsuit, whether you did anything wrong or not. Isn't and America
3: that true? is a Sue happy country. Yeah. You know? It yeah. really is. And it's a shame,
0: but it is. A um, litigious business. So, I mean, this sort of walks us into this idea of surrounding yourself with the professionals. You need a lawyer,
4: a
3: hitman.
0: <laughs> you know, different kinds of professionals. for hire. An accountant.
3: Well, as you get bigger, you not you don't just need one lawyer for general counsel. You need, you know, your tax lawyer and and the, there's lawyers everywhere. Yeah, right? in
4: case you want to sue your lawyer,
3: you have to have <laughs> other oh, lawyer. lawyers. Yeah. yeah, and the lawyers don't get along, right? Yeah. Your own lawyers don't get along. So,
4: it,
2: I take it from the laughter and everything. You've had some experience with this. Ugh.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: It's yeah. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: From a startup perspective, we're not necessarily liable for, uh, in the same way for the, that Lino says, you know, we write code that brings down the New York Stock Exchange, but the product itself has to work as advertised. Right. So we're selling a product to somebody else and they're making business decisions based on the product. Those business decisions are life or death for that particular company. So we have to guarantee the accuracy of our software. But that also doesn't case because, you know, you, there's ways around that by saying this software is provided as is.
0: Right. This is the end user license agreement.
1: However, does that protect you really? That actually does protect you a lot because at the same time is, you know, if you are going to, um, you know, you, you're you're looking at something on the news on the television, and they tell you some information. You can't really sue the news for the for that particular information because we were an information company. However, where we could get sued and where you're, where things are problematic are service level agreements, mm-hmm. right. right? So we had right. to make sure that our service because our service fed into Bloomberg. For those who are not the mayor, but Bloomberg um, has a financial services um, data aggregation service. Know kind of like a flipboard for for Wall Street people. So we fed our data into Bloomberg, and we had to guarantee that by certain times of the day, certain days of the week, we would have certain things done, or we face financial penalties. Mm.
0: But generally, you know, I hate to say it, but I've actually read end user license agreements. They're not fun to read, but the but the main thing it says is our the limit of our exposure is the amount of money you paid for the software. Yep. That's the whole thing. Is you know, yeah, we shut down the Denver airport, and many millions of dollars was lost. But we'll
2: give you your money back.
0: We're only going to give you your money back. You're not going to pay for all of your losses. I mean, that's really the essence of a a, even service level agreements generally limit themselves to, you know, fines. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Do we
2: need to have a service level agreement for .NET Rocks? Well, (laughs) because we we can't really give people their money back.
0: No, there is an advantage to not being paid directly.
2: Yeah, I guess so. That's I. That's a very good point. Um, you know, people who release uh, software into the into the public domain, you know, uh, and put it up as open source software, are they naturally just exempt from any liability because they're not selling the software? Do you I, get all the? I don't
3: know the answer to that question, but I do know that uh, these marketplaces, especially um, on the Apple side, there yeah. there are some big problems with. Uh, Information protection. Right. Yeah.
1: Mm. You're getting to areas that it's we're huge. not experts yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. not lawyers. We, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not, we
0: could do a show around this, but I think we put lawyers on the stand. Legal for it. IP, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a huge issue, but I think it's certainly. You know, getting back to if you're an entrepreneur who wants to get out and and start playing with these things, you need to have some legal counsel.
4: Yeah, for instance, for Falafel, we have never been sued ever for the last 10 years, but it came as close as this. As, uh, and hopefully, somebody here will actually understand what I'm saying. Somebody's saying, "I'd like you to build this for me." we will tell them it will take 80 hours. We charge this per hour, and then you ship the product, and they found a bug. It's like, okay, we need to fix that bug. Sure, no problem. That's be an extra two hours. No, nope, I already paid but we are on time and material. So they expect right. you now to live for the rest of your life fixing and doing whatever to that 80 hours. Because it's your, the bug was your fault. Yeah, right. Well, right. And we try to explain to somebody like bugs are part of software development. Mm-hmm. All right. You, you're always going to find a bug. Nothing is perfect but the product works. You're going to find a bug. No problem. We'll spend an extra two hours and they don't like that sometimes. Yeah. If, if they have not been in the software industry then that's not their, their thing. They expect you like if I find a bug from now till you are 65 years old you're going to fix it for me for free. And usually that's when I say no. <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess that's managing customer expectation as much as anything else, helping them understand what software is really like.
2: So let's say you're working in a, in a company anywhere in the world, and you're a software developer, and you're working for these people. What are some of the telltale signs that it's time to go out on your
1: own? When your next door neighbor buys a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> No comment, Lino? <laughs> no habla inglés.
3: How
1: we begin? I actually th- here in all seriousness, it is always a good time to go out on your own and start a business. Actually, downturns and recessions are great times to start a business. It's right true. right after September 11th in the height of the craziness and the recession, I started a business, sold it five years later, right? And right after Lehman Brothers, started another business and sold it two years later, right? So, you know, two recessions, great time to start a business. During boom times, another great time to start a business. So it's always a good time to start a business.
0: It's just a question of how you, you know, what's the advantage in a downturn? Why would you want to start one there?
1: Things are cheap. Well, things are cheap. Um, also, there's a lot of talent out there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people that are looking, um, either unemployed labor or in our case in the tech industry, there's not many unemployed developers because there's a, there's um we're, we're actually at a developer drought these days, Mm -hmm. but developers that are stuck in a job because they can't move. Because the company is hurting or they've dropped bonuses or no raises. So you can get a developer on board and say, hey, take a part of equity or, or something like that. Also, you're less likely to get a copycat me too. So if you're building a product and your product is, you know, you're selling, you know, ice cream over the Internet. People actually do it. Uh, yeah, I bought some. <laughs> I just bought some yesterday. So you're selling ice cream over the internet. That's your great idea. Well, in a recession, you're, you might get one or two people that see your idea because you're always only six months out. Or you're only six months ahead of the next guy, right? So someone might get that idea. In a recession, maybe only two people will start, will start to compete with you. In the boom times, it'll be a dozen.
0: Yeah. I also think that when in a downturn, the, your customers are more sensitive to return on investment, so this, there's a story you tell in a downturn that's different than the story you tell in a boom time. is just, It's just about messaging, how you communicate, uh, how you, you, you pitch your product.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the other company I started a, a number of a few years ago, I always say, and this is great if you're an entrepreneur, you need an analogy. You need the one-minute elevator pitch. I say, right. if you're with Warren Buffett in an elevator, you need one sentence to tell them what to do and my wife always hates when i say this but my last business was expedia.com for ocean freight containers if you know what expedia yeah if you know what expedia.com is right the airplane you know what the last business does that was started right in the height of the last well this i still think we're in this recession and um <laughs> So that was started at the height of the recession and we had a different conversation with the customers. It was about saving money. Yes, they're going to pay us money, but ultimately we presented the case and the way it really worked out is it cost them $100 to do something and our system, it would cost them seven. So we said, you can move more product by still spending that $100, but you can move, you know, like 10 times more product, right? And that was the value proposition we brought Mm. to them.
2: Very good. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, uh, we're taking a loss. What happened? Well, you're a developer. You can create a report. So you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss, the money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control. Completely self-contained BI. Using a drag-and-drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data, and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active Analysis will take care of the aggregation, grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use Active Analysis. For a free evaluation, please go to gcpowertools.com analysis. And don't forget to thank Grape City for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks.
0: Guys, any other key bits of advice? What about what about the whole hiring and firing thing?
4: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to share something that I learned from uh, Steve Jobs, mm. uh, which is, uh, said uh, A players hire A-plus players, B players hire C players, mm. and C players hire D players. Always think of that when you want to start a company. It um, doesn't matter really um, that you maybe you're not the top dog in the company. If you hire... Excellent, great people that will always lift the company up. People that are not so sure about themselves or not so good, they always want to hire people that do not make them look bad. Right. So they hire people below them a little bit. But if to, to build a company that's great, you always have to find the best, absolute best talent out there, and that will be the best thing you can do for your company.
3: I could not agree more. And absolutely. And that the attribute of... Um, well, you can tell a good engineer because they're very honest about what they don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. I've, right. I've, always, I've always sensed that the difference between a junior developer and a senior developer is a senior developer
3: says, I don't know more often. Exactly. And that happens for business people, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a, if you pretend like you know everything, man, that's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. But the hiring and firing thing is difficult. Yeah. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I'm awful. Do I like everybody. That's why I'm not allowed to interview in my own company. (laughs) I would hire everybody. You think I'm kidding, but it's true. I am not allowed to interview anybody. Well, In my own company, Lino, do you do hiring, firing? Yeah, I do all
4: the. But you're hiring. such an emotional guy. I do. That's why I'm not the decision maker. I just interview them. <laughs> <laughs>
3: he
4: just likes to meet people. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually. uh Sometimes the team will not will be on the fence. Like uh, four or five people will say, "I think uh, this person is a go," and five people will say, "Like, I don't know. He didn't pass the link questions, or didn't know what uh, this works. So I was okay. So he has he or she has to go through the Lino test, which We'll go out for lunch together and we'll talk technical. Yeah. And I will, uh, um, it's not only, I, I would rather get somebody that doesn't know everything but has a personality to learn instead of somebody who is very good but will not be able to pick up new things. In this industry, that doesn't work. Right. You have to be able to. So I love it when during the interview somebody tells me, No, I have never used Link before. That's awesome. I'm going to explain Because you know how you're going to blow their minds. I'm <laughs> going to actually tell them how Link works for about 20 minutes. And then I'm going to ask them a question about what I just explained to them and see if they understood what I said or not. Oh, and if they brilliant. did, that means we can work together. Yeah. I don't care if you know all about Lincoln; you cannot learn anything new. <laughs> so. right. um, that is a brilliant technique. Yes. And that's with, interesting.
1: Well, the thing with the hiring and the firing is you have to become dispassionate about it. At the end of the day, it is a business decision. And if you think, as Tim said, he loves everyone and it's very hard to do, there are at least five people in New York City that I have hired at one startup, laid them off, and then another startup hired them again right? Yeah. And people like, why would that person... And there's one guy that did it with three companies. There's one individual living in New York City today that I've hired twice, fired twice, and hired a third time. Um, and it was dispassionate. And I explained, you know, it was obvious what was coming. They understood. We talked about it. And it was one of the most difficult things I've had to do. But at the, but at the end of the day, it was a business decision. And... um you know, it's very tough, but it has to be done.
2: So I have a story for you. I went to um, at the, about the same time I was getting into programming on the PC XT clone that <laughs> resonated with <laughs> no, no, this was only seven ninety nine. Okay, back in whenever it was, it was a clone, right? Uh, I was in a recording engineering school in Florida, learning about whether I wanted to go into the music business. And I look around and saw some of the idiots in the music business, and I said. I think I'm going to go into computer programming. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I had one class, uh, a production class, and the producer, the teacher, gave me the most brilliant advice that I've ever heard. And this is an interpersonal story. So in a recording session, if you're the producer, your job isn't to make the music. Your job is to keep everybody on task, motivated. You're the sort of the product manager on a software developer team. But it's your job to come up with the final product right, for the record company. And if you're not focused and you're not disciplined, you will let your personal feelings about a particular drummer who can't make it get in the way. And what you should really be doing is pulling the band aside and said, this guy needs to go now. I've got another drummer who can come in and replace him right now. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and you know, and the, the artists are like, Oh my God, but if something is holding you back, get rid of it and do something else. He also said the, the most important two words that you can use when a session is going badly and people aren't cutting it. And you know, the, the downward spiral starts are the two words, let's eat. You yeah. basically take everybody to lunch, you get the blood sugar se- uh, settled, <laughs> right? They have a chance to relax and f- refocus, regroup, come back in, you'll always get a better track. Carl and I do this a lot, as you can see.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> let's eat. Yeah, there's very few problems can't be solved by pizza.
2: <laughs> so if you're in that meeting, you know, and things are going badly, and people are just getting at it, you know, it's time for lunch. But
1: everybody's got to go to lunch. Well, this brings up a point is you should never start a business with friends. That's
2: very true. Hmm. It's very true.
1: You should never, ever start a business with friends because when that difficult decision comes, it then becomes very emotional.
2: I've had to do it twice, not with Rocks, but with a, my other company. And it's, it's very difficult.
1: And when I've lured um, in my role at Telerik, I've been luring people I say, oh, you've been hiring a couple of your friends of late. And I said, one of the first things I tell them when I lure them and tell them the great things about coming to work at Telerik, I said, I will not hesitate to fire you if I have to. I just said it right on the table. I said, if you're comfortable with that, I said, I, I don't want it to affect the friendship. I said, actually, yeah. the friendship should make it easier that I can have the honest conversation with you, mm. right? But um, most of the times, you have to have a very special relationship with a friend if you're going to start a business with them.
2: Very true. Well, guys, I think that's about a show, isn't it? Yep. All right. Well, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Tim Huckabee, Lino Tadros, Stephen
1: Forte. Let's give it up. Thank you. We'll
2: see you next time on DotNet Rock.